Well, good morning, dads and everyone else. I just want to honor you dads, you fathers in the house. Uh, being a father, being a dad was one of the greatest um, things for me, uh, having my three kids, and I'll say more about that later, but just bless you guys that are out there today. Um, this is our third message uh, on the uh, Ten Commandments, One Commandment, Learning to Love. And um, this morning, we're going to talk about the second commandment, but uh, about idols, but we're going to talk about some context first. And before we get into it, I want to say, how many of you know that reading the Bible sometimes, especially the Old Testament, can be very challenging at times? Yes? Some of you find that? Some of you? Few of you? Well, there's, there's all kinds of difficulties. There's mysteries in there. There are ironies in there. There are contradictions. Sometimes there's paradoxical statements. Don't make any sense. And the temptation is to get to a passage, and if we don't understand it, the temptation is just to pass it and move on. And I want to say don't do that. I want to say engage with it. Dig in. Press into it. Until... I want you to engage until you get a revelation from the Lord and until you get breakthrough and watch him give you something because you worked it out that way. Um, so this morning, I'm kind of fascinated really by the way that God chose to reveal himself as he was giving the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about the second commandment but first, I want to talk about how he revealed himself. And I've got a couple of scriptures for you, and I want you to kind of tune in to see how he did that. Uh, this is from um, Deuteronomy 4. You remember that God appeared to Moses and to Israel on a mountain, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, in a blazing fire. And this is what Moses says. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you, at Horeb, out of the fire. And one chapter after that, he says, well, the scripture says, Moses summoned all Israel and said, hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us, who are alive here today. And then this line, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. When he summarizes this whole passage, this same incident at, the, at Horeb, it says this, these are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. Fire and cloud, kind of opposites. Fire and darkness, how do you work that out? He said, you saw no form, but then he, Moses also said, God spoke to you face by face. Well, that's an absurd statement. <laughs> you saw no form, and yet he spoke to you face to face? How does that work? 
It's one of those challenging passages. All Israel had that day was a voice. That's it. Plus, I suppose you could say the special effects. But I have a question for you. How is anyone supposed to relate to a God who reveals himself like that? You ever thought about that? If you were an Israelite, would you feel secure and confident? Would you have an intimate relationship with a God like that? Be hard. You husbands out there, you, you can't curl up in bed with a consuming fire. And you know, you can't fully embrace a cloud. And good luck anybody trying to kiss deep darkness. <laughs> they were supposed to love God and worship God. How? Why is God choosing to be so intangible? Why is God sometimes playing hard to get? Have you ever felt that way? Like, God, why are you so invisible? I need something real. Yes? Can you relate? Well, the good news is, I think the second commandment will help us to understand some of those challenges. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. Father, I pray that you would release your Holy Spirit today. Let your spirit rest on each one of us. Let your wisdom and your truth go deep into our hearts and protect us in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the second commandment. <clears throat> you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want to point out three things in this passage, right out. First of all, what does God mean by an idol? All right, one of two things. An idol is either a false god, like, for example, the god of the Egyptians or the Canaanites, or an idol is a carved image representation of that god. Now, in those days, many pagans believed that the spirit of the god would inhabit the man-made idol. And that meant their gods were portable. You could take your god with you wherever you wanted. It also meant, in a way, that you could kind of control that god. It's not much of a god, is it, if we can control it like that? In the second commandment, Idol refers to the man-made or carved image of a god, of a false god, or it represents God falsely, either one. And here's what God's saying. He's saying this. Don't make an image of anything in heaven, on earth, or in the sea. Don't turn anything in the created realm 
into an object of worship. All right, second, God says he's jealous. That may confuse some of us. But saying he's jealous suddenly puts the context that we should see around all of the commandments. It's the context of a love relationship that the commandments are given. And we need to see the commandments in that light. And by the way, jealousy does not mean uh, envious or resentful or suspicious like you and I think of jealousy today. Instead, think of intense passion. Think of intense feeling. Think of a father's jealousy for his only child. And you'll get an idea of what we mean by jealous. I remember when I became a super, super jealous father when my kids were born. I remember thinking, I am going to do whatever it takes and I will make any sacrifice so that my children will flourish and have complete well-being. I remember feeling that at the time. They would, they would get the best nutrition, the best books, the best teachers that I could, I could provide, the best schools that I could find. That was my heart. And I really loved it in the summer. You know, we would look at each of our three kids and we'd look at their God-given unique design. And every summer, I loved researching summer camps and programs that would match each of the children's God-given design. And it was a thrill for me to see them go into these camps or these classes or whatever it was and be enriched and fulfilled because it matched who they were. That was a thrill for me as a father. I wasn't a helicopter father, you know, hovering over the kid, always, always nitpicking. I wasn't that at all, but I was jealous. I cared about their complete well-being. And I remember that. I think that was God-given. I was jealous. Well, one day, Kathy took Rebecca, my daughter, down to the swimming pool, block away. And as they left the house and the door closed, I felt this fatherly pressure, something on me, that I should just pray a prayer for them. So I said, Father, watch over Beck and watch over Kathy today. Just, just take care of them today. And that was it. When they got to the pool, and Becca, she jumps in, and 10 feet away from her was a water moccasin swimming right for her. Moccasins are territorial snakes, and if you violate their space, they will attack you. Well, one of the guards sees the snake swimming toward her. He yells, Kathy scoops up Rebecca, and they get out of the pool just in time. That snake was a couple of feet away from her by that time. 50% of the people who get bit by a water moccasin will lose a limb. And Becca was so small in those days that that's, that snake bite would have killed her. 
Here's my point. My God was so jealous for me and for Rebecca and for our happiness. He was so jealous for us that he dropped by his spirit into my heart just this desire to pray. And I prayed, and I have no doubt in my mind that that prayer saved her life. He is jealous for us. You guys, we have a hard time getting this. We have a really hard time believing that God really cares that much about us. But he does. I'm telling you, he does. He is out for your complete well-being, your complete happiness. He wants to enrich you and fulfill you and bless you. That is part of his jealousy for us. Does that make sense? Do you hear that? That means he's going to hate whatever threatens to harm us or to kill us. He will hate that thing. And if I could have gotten my hands on that snake, end of discussion. Well, third, what does God mean by worship? He says, you shall not bow down and worship them, which means we should never give man-made objects or created things the attention and the affection that we should be giving to the Lord. And since the context of this passage is a love relationship, an idol therefore indicates that you and I have a love problem. Anytime we have an idol, we have a problem of disordered or misplaced love. Love for an idol is love for another God. It's spiritual adultery. It means we are rejecting God and choosing to love someone else. You dads, you dads out there, what would you feel like if one of your children came up to you and said, hey, dad, um, we want this, this other guy to be our, our father from now on. Would you feel okay with that? That would be devastating to me. All right, we've been in the Old Testament now. Well, let's bring the discussion of idols into the New Testament because there it's a different ball game altogether. And Daniel spoke about this last week. He showed us how the New Testament actually expands the definition of idolatry. It's no longer just a little trinket. And this is from Ephesians 5. For of this you can be sure... No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Sexual immorality, sex outside of the boundaries of marriage, impurity, greed, are now classified as idolatry. And this makes sense when you realize that idolatry is spiritual adultery, right? When we indulge in these sins, we're breaking faith with the Lord. It really means we're having an affair with another God. 
Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes this. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He goes on. Sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. That changes the whole playing field of idolatry, doesn't it? We said God is jealous, and we said that he hates whatever can harm us. Do you know why he hates idols? Because he knows exactly what idols will do to us. You see, we worship what we love, and we become what we worship. Here's the point I don't want you to miss. You and I were made for worship. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. When we worship an idol, we give authority and power to that idol. And then that idol turns around and starts to exert authority and power over us. Whatever we worship, we become like that thing. If we worship a block of wood, we become like a block of wood. Psalm 115 is the proof. Pay attention in this, as I read this, to what idols do to us. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but can't hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel, feet but they can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who make them will be like them. What do idols do to us? They steal all of our human powers. Idols are fundamentally dehumanizing. They make us less human, not more. You might think of the pictures you've seen of people with addictions, maybe fentanyl, maybe alcohol, what those things do to them socially, emotionally, mentally, physically. These are those unfortunate ones who've been taken captive by an idol. I heard a prophetic word one time. This guy saw a bunch of people on a conveyor belt and it was taking these people up to the edge of a cliff and then dumping the people into a canyon below. The people were wrapped 
in the thing they had worshipped during their lifetimes. One man was wrapped in sod, and he had grass coming out of his mouth. Another man was wrapped in his golf clubs. These people were conscious, and they were breathing, but they were completely paralyzed. They were miserable, contorted people, paralyzed by their idols. All they could do is sit there motionless until the conveyor belt threw them over the cliff into the canyon. This is a horrifying picture of what idols do to us, of the damage that they can inflict on us. Let me put it this way. An idol is a python coiling itself around us. Do you see why God hates idols so much? He knows what they'll do to us, and he's jealous. But more than that, let's flip this around. Do you see the incredible love that's really behind the second commandment? He loves us so much, he is going to care about whatever hurts us or can kill us. And that's why he hates idols. And that's why the second commandment. Folks, this is not a prohibition. This is protection. Our God loves us and he's trying to protect us. Don't see the commandments as these restrictive things. We've got to see them all in the context of his blazing fire love for each one of us. Amen? Are you still here? Okay. What I'm trying to say is God desires a face-to-face relationship with each one of us. Nobody is excluded here. He's, but he set up this relationship in such a way that it absolutely depends on one thing and one thing alone. Not that you see his form, but that you hear his voice. In this relationship, success absolutely depends on the degree to which you and I hear God's voice. My sheep, said Jesus, hear my voice. In other words, to love God is to listen to him. To listen to him is to love him. And to listen, folks, we have to be close. We have to be face to face. Amen? I just love listening to baseball games on the radio. I'm not kidding. In the car, at home, whatever. All I have is a voice. The voice of the announcer. So I want, I want to try to describe this for you. So if you don't mind, would you close your eyes? I, wanna, I want you to work your imagination for a second, okay? So close your eyes. Let me describe it to you. So it's a sunny 
lazy Saturday afternoon in mid-July. Try to picture this now. I go upstairs to my office and I turn on the radio. Then I sit back in a blue easy chair. I lean back in the chair, a footrest comes up, and I start to relax. Through the windows, I can see a row of cypress trees, and beyond them, acres of bean fields as I listen to the play-by-play. The Reds are playing the Cardinals. It's the bottom of the ninth. Two outs. Reds lead by three. Cardinals have runners at second and third. The count is full. To last year's MVP, Paul Goldschmidt. The pitch is on the way. Ah, it's fouled, out of play. You know, Goldschmidt is 0 for 3 today with a walk and two pop ups. The former MVP is batting 288, but he's 0 for 7 in the last two games. The pitcher checks the runners the pitch, and it's a high fly ball down the third baseline. Fairchild is running for it. He's on the warning path. He's near the wall. And when I listen to the announcer call the game, I want to freeze Fairchild for a moment in midair. As I listen to the announcer call the game, I am forced to engage with only words. And in a strange way, listening to the words and imagining what's going on in a strange way makes it more real to me. It somehow goes deeper if I were watching it. I have to engage. And that is how God wants you and I to relate to him, not to an image, not to a form, not to an idol, but to his voice, his words speaking love into our hearts. That's what he's after. Listening to God is loving God. Loving God is listening to God. What counts is the degree to which you and I can listen and hear him. Amen? He doesn't want us to passively see him. He wants us to actively hear him. Oh, by the way, you Cardinal fans, how many of you saw a home run? Goldie hit a home run. Nobody? You know what happened? Well, the ball was foul. And on the next pitch, it was a swing and a miss. Sometimes I put too much faith in my heroes. They let you down sometimes, don't they? (laughs) You know, sometimes because you and I need something concrete and tangible sometimes, sometimes that causes us to drift toward idols, toward worshiping things in the created realm. Do you think people can worship their house? Do you think, you think people can worship their car or their career or 
maybe even themselves. We, we live in a culture that is doing everything it can possibly do to get us to think we're the greatest thing on earth. To think of ourselves really in the wrong way. Can a sports team become an idol? Can a famous athlete become an idol? Is it possible to love these things too much? I love sports. I'm all over sports. But I'm asking you this. Is it possible we can love something too much? You go into a man's home and he shows you his prayer room. And you see a Bible. You see scriptures on the wall. You see some candles. You go into another guy's room or his home and he shows you an autographed baseball. Or he shows you the jersey of his famous hero. And then he brings out his prized possession. It's this little statue of a man. He's on a pedestal. He's got a really small body, but a really, really big head. And it goes like this. Is this the American idol of our times? A bobblehead? And suddenly, the whole room feels like a kind of shrine to a baseball player. I want you to hear me on this. It's not a situation where it's either God or baseball. Because I have God in the right place, he helps me to put everything else in my life in its right place. God wants us to enjoy life. I'm not talking about a super religious viewpoint. Put God in first place, and he will put everything in the right place. Does that make sense? Back to shrines. Do you have any shrines in your house? Do you have any shrines in your heart? How do you know if you've got an idol? A couple questions for you real quick. What would the people closest to you say you spend too much time on each day? What would it be hard for you to give up for a day or a few days or a week or a month? Is there any good thing in your life that you've turned into a bad thing because you love it too much? Do you have an addiction or a sin issue that just won't go away? Is it possible that your cell phone is an object of worship? It's really quiet in here. <laughs> the good news is, folks, Jesus is God made real. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God tangible. But it's true, we cannot worship something that we don't love. And we can't love something we don't know. And we can't know someone unless we spend time with them. Maybe we break faith with the Lord because we really don't know him. Maybe some of us are actually afraid of him. A good way to start knowing God is by knowing his names. And a good place to start is the Gospel of John. There are seven names for God in that Gospel. 
They're I am statements. Jesus says, I am something. And I guarantee you, if you, if you reflect and if you meditate on these statements, these names of God, God will become more real to you. I mean, look at the imagery that he uses. It's all concrete. I am the bread of life. I will nourish you. I will give you strength. I will go to every part of your body. I am the light of the world. You turn light inside out and you get a rainbow. A rainbow is a sign placed in the heavens by God. It's a sign of his covenant promises. All of those promises are contained in Jesus. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's all the colors of the universe. He's all the promises of God. Meditating on these makes God more real. I am the vine. You're the branches. If you're separated from me, if your idols separate you from me, you will have no life. But when you're connected to the vine, my life will come into your branches. You study these, you'll come to one obvious conclusion. Right off the top, Jesus is associated with life. Life and abundant life. It's the very opposite of what our idols and our addictions promise us. They coil around us and they kill us. But Jesus is life itself. And when we're connected by engaging with him and by listening to him, we will have life as well. It says in Jonah, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Grace is God's help for whatever situation we're in, whatever trouble, whatever trial. God's grace is available at that moment. But if we turn instead to worthless idols, we forfeit the grace that's right there in front of us. Jesus is called the one and only, full of grace and truth in the Gospel of John. It is my favorite expression for the Lord. He is my one and only. He's the only one that will free us from addictions. He's the only one who can break sin off of us. He's the only one that knows authentic love and can fill us with authentic love. He's the one and only, the only one. I challenge you to engage with him. I challenge you to get to know him. To know God is to love him. To love God is to listen to his voice. Amen? All right, amen. Well, why don't you stand? Let's get ready to worship this amazing God. And I want to say a prayer over you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to each heart here today. Father, I pray that you will bring your gentle pressure and that you will reveal to us anything that is competing with you. And Father, I pray for the grace and the power to break those idols off of anyone here today. I bless this group, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.